together to Psalm 8. We are continuing this summer series now through the Psalms. All you have to do is look around you a little bit and know that summers are difficult. One of the things that's true for us Westerners is most of us have a little bit of disposable income, and so in the summer, we spend it. We travel and we go around, and so we miss a lot of people in the summer. And it's hard to do a traditional sort of expositional study in the summer because you miss a lot. And so we've chosen to do the Psalms this summer because we want you to be able to jump back in when you're here, and we want you to be here as much as you can. But if you have to be away, we totally get it. That's part of living here. And when you come back, we want you to be able to jump in wherever we are. Also, we feel that we need to continue to help you be redemptively changing in every area. We are not here just to make you smarter Christians. I think that's a little bit of a danger in our church. I warn you about that from time to time. We are a church that cares a lot about doctrine. We are a church that cares a lot about teaching the Bible verse by verse. We get down into the minutia. But we don't just want to make you smarter Christians. Additionally, we don't just want to make you better behaviors. We do want you to know more about God. We do want you to obey Him in every way. We want you to be changed from top to bottom, including the inside stuff, the stuff that, frankly, a lot of people don't see. And it's the inside stuff which occupies your mind. People watch you a lot less than you think they do. That might be a little bit of a shocking thing to hear, so I'm going to say it one more time because I know you're all sort of settling in. People watch you a lot less than you think they do. And the reason I say that is a lot of times you think that everybody sees all the outside stuff and you wonder if they can see down into your soul, if they have like penetrating vision down into your soul like some sort of superhero. They don't. Now, there are a few people in this church who are relatively insightful. I think the Spirit has gifted them to kind of know what's going on with you, but most of us aren't like that. Most of us can't see inside your soul. Most of us don't have some sort of spiritual x-ray vision. But you know, for the most part, you, you know what's going on inside. You know when you're happy. You know when you're sad. You know when you're filled up. You know when you're lonely. You know when you're confident. You know when you're confused. And if you're like most people, you sort of drift in and out of that all the time. As a church, we are here not just to help the outside stuff be changing, but the inside stuff too. So you'll know what to do whenever you're confused. So that you'll know where to turn when you're incredibly sad. So that you'll know who to rely on when you're lonely and external relationships, even the most intimate of relationships, seem to fail you. When life seems to be slipping through your fingers and you just can't catch up to it, what do you do? The people around you often cannot see, but you know and you can feel hopeless and helpless. We are going to spend time in the Psalms this summer not only because it's better for Westerners' schedules, but because we want you to understand that from top to bottom, the scriptures have been given to us to address all that we are, both the outside and the inside. 
Psalm 8 is an incredibly important psalm. It's important because it orients us. It's really important for all image bearers. I think it's really important for us Westerners. There has probably never been a time in all of human history, so that's kind of significant, there's probably never been a time in all of human history when a collective group of people, like us, have had more at our disposal. So think about it. Think about all the things at our disposal. We have money to buy the food we want. We have homes that most of us enjoy. And if we don't, we have access to websites to show us how everybody else's house is better than ours, and we can plan on making ours better. Most of us can take trips of short or greater length. Most of us like our spouses relatively well. Most of us have access to just about anything that we can dream of. There has probably never been a time in all of human history when a group of people has had access to more things which hold out the concept or the possibility of happiness. And yet, even the best of things that hold out that concept, that idea, that promise of satisfaction to us never really satisfies. This psalm puts in front of us the most important truth of all, and that is that there is a majestic Lord who made everything. On the one hand, that might be relatively awe-inspiring to you, but David in this psalm says more than that. The one who made all things has set his affections upon you. In Pinterest, in Facebook, in Cabo, in golf, in sports, in clothing, in homes, in money, in relationships, and a perfect church, and anything else cannot and never will measure up. This psalm orients us. It puts in front of us, my beloved, what is most important and what is most true. And that is that foundationally, above all, there is a God who made all things, and he loves us. And because of us, David both at the beginning and at the end of the psalm, calls the people of God, those who enjoy his covenant affections, to praise him. The great Westminster Confession of Faith says that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. John Piper, who has affected a lot of us, mostly for the good, tweaked that a number of years ago and built a legacy by saying, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And this psalm, as much as any other, puts those truths in front of us, that we are called to glorify, to worship 
the one true God because we exult in his special and particular love for his people. As we talked about last week in the introduction to the Psalms, David wrote about half of them, almost exactly half if we have it right. David was a young man who spent time from boyhood through adulthood considering, meditating upon the glory of God demonstrated to him in gracious affection. A boy who was commissioned by his father to sleep out at night with the sheep, to gaze up at the stars, to appreciate the wonder and beauty of the created order around him, who understood that as a young boy set apart to be the king of God's covenant people, brought through trial and turmoil, often at the hands of others, sometimes because of his own terrible choices, David experienced both in what he saw and what he knew in God's great faithfulness that his identity was in a son of God, being a son of God. And Psalm 8 comes from the pen of a man who deeply knew riches, fame, but despite the riches and the fame, David's identity, his orientation was to be in God and God's great affections for him. And because we are a people that has so much at our fingertips, we need to be oriented around what is true. Otherwise, we often are like walking zombies who on the outside might look a bit okay, animated even, but on the inside feel very dry, constantly scrambling for meaning and happiness. Psalm 8 orients all of us. Let's read it together. Psalm 8. To the choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of David. So David gave this, the words, to the one who would lead the people in praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. A simple outline for this psalm. Our covenant Lord is worthy of our praise. He will say it again in verse 9, but he opens this important psalm in verse 1 
by establishing that our covenant Lord is worthy of our praise. In verse 1, he calls him Lord two different times, but in Hebrew, those are two different words. The first one, which in most of your Bibles will be in all caps, is the Hebrew term Yahweh. He is the self-existent one. This is the name with which he identifies himself with the people of Israel. He is the one who had no beginning. He is the one who needs no external sustaining. He is the Lord of all, unmade, uncreated, who made all created things and sustains them. In particular, his covenant people, sustaining them with merciful love. The second term is a term which means that he is master over all. He is the governor of his people. He is their king. And what David is saying here is that the covenant Lord, who has graciously shepherded Israel, is their king. It's personal. We have talked about this many times through the years, but it bears repeating because we need to have some repetition from time to time. We intuitively know, I think, that there is a God who is full of power. But if that God, that Lord, full of power, if he is not for his people, then he would terrify us. We, we might be in awe of him when we actually took notice of him, but we might not feel that we can trust him. We might not feel very warmed by the thought that there is such a God out there. But David, who went from shepherd boy to marginalized anointed one to eventually being on the throne and then through the sins of others and the sins of his own family and then his own sins had sort of a sad end. Here is one who throughout his sojourn, through ups and downs, joys and sorrows, gains and loss, knew that there was one who was not only powerful, he was full of grace. And he calls the people of Israel here in this psalm by handing over the words to the choir master to use these words to praise God, to praise the one who keeps covenant with his people, to praise the one who is the king of his people. Because we are so often distracted and because we are so often disoriented, a psalm like this might just smack us in the proverbial face to set things right, to get our eyes on what is true. The psalms vary in their emotions and in their themes. We will spend time this summer going through psalms which talk about our sadness, which talk about our sin, which talk about our confusion, which talk about our anger. But through all of this, there is a constant reminder that we are to trust and to praise God. And before we get into some of those more difficult emotions... I felt like it was important for us to spend at least this week and next 
orienting ourselves into what is true. For whether we are happy or sad, confident or confused, pursuing humility or gripped by pride, there is one fundamental reality that never changes, that there is a God who made all things and He loves His people. And so I say to you today, no matter what state you find your heart in today, that the God who made all things loves His people, and you can trust Him. If your husband is being dismissive, and he is not addressing the deeper needs of your heart, no matter how many times you have hinted at it, there is one who never changes. If you are worried about how your children will turn out, and you're constantly scrambling to make sure that they are happy and healthy and on the right trajectory and academics and sports and everything else, there is a God who controls all things, and you know that you don't. If you worry if you'll have enough to pay the mortgage, or if the job that you have longed for for all the years seems to elude you, there is one who is over all and controls all things for your benefit. I think at the end of the day, most of us feel pretty lonely a lot of the time. Even those of us with the best marriages, the best kids, and the coolest friends often wonder why there's a nagging feeling like we are alone. There's practical reasons for that. We want to help you with your relationships, and I do want to remind you that in any relational difficulty, it takes two to tango. But I think God does this on purpose. I think God, to some degree, always makes us feel pretty empty if we are not essentially pretty intimately connected to Him. David makes this psalm very personal. He doesn't just talk about God making the skies and the seas, controlling the changing of the seasons, defeating his enemies. David makes this psalm incredibly personal. And David, who spent a lot of time alone watching sheep, David, who spent a lot of time alone running away from Saul, whom he only served with faithfulness, David, who had his own sons turn their backs on him, often felt very alone. And yet, he knew that there was one who knew him and cared for him and one whom he could trust. And what does he do? He calls himself, because I think, first of all, this was about David, and then those whom he led, he calls them to praise the one true God. This psalm in many ways is about identity. Let me try to explain to you what that means as we get into the heart of the psalm. Our covenant Lord is worthy of our praise because, and this is what verses 2 through 8 are all about, our covenant Lord is worthy of our praise because he has set his favor and affections upon his people. 
You'll notice in verse 2 that the humble ones, the ones who don't have a lot of strength, the one who ostensibly on the outside, externally, don't seem that great, they are the ones that God sets His affections upon. And despite the fact that the world rages against God and against His people, even when they feel small, even whenever they are in full awareness of their limitations, God praises Himself through His people. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Matthew chapter 5. This section at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5 is familiar to many of you. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. This particular section, the opening, is what we call the Beatitudes. It's where Jesus talks about those who are happy and why they can be happy. Let's start in verse 2. He, Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart and the peacemakers and those who are persecuted and reviled against falsely on Jesus' account. They can rejoice and be glad. They are the blessed ones. Brothers and sisters, whenever we became followers of Jesus, we may have come with the illusion that life would be easier and all that was sad would come untrue in the here and now. But most of us have learned that is not the case. For millennia, God's people have lived at the margins of society. And whatever illusion we have that we are favored, it is just that. It is an illusion. And I think what David is saying in Psalm 8, verse 2, is though the world around us seems strong, those who oppose God openly, we who are his own, we who seem to be poor, we who are the meek ones, we who are the poor in spirit, we who are the ones who are able to endure the reviling and the opposition of all those who oppose God, we are the ones that will eventually be the favored ones when it's all said and done. We saw this, if you remember, at the end of Psalm 1. The psalmist says in verses 5 and 6, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. His affections, his eyesight, it's on his people. And this helps us endure because we know the end of the story. In Psalm 144, verses 3 through 4, the psalmist says, O Lord, what is man that you regard him? Or the son of man that you think of him, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. This echoes the thoughts that we've already seen today in Psalm 8. The psalmist, David, is making a very important point. The Lord, the self-existent one, has existed from eternity past. That's, that's a mind-boggling thing. 
in some way I can kind of wrap my mind around the fact that we'll have no end, but the fact that there was no beginning, I mean, that, that makes your brain hurt trying to even conceive of that. And at some point you just have to sort of throw your hands up in the air and say, I don't get it, I don't understand it. But the Lord, the self-existent one who had no beginning, was happy, pleased, satisfied, and fulfilled before there was anything that was ever made. God was not up in heaven, wringing his hands, trying to figure out how to make himself happy. That's not why creation came about. Creation came about because God wanted to share his attributes with others. And this makes perfect sense. Because God the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit had been mutually loving one another and delighting in one another from eternity past. And it just sort of makes sense. Almost, it's inevitable that they, in their great love and delight in one another, would purpose to create others, not equal with them, but ones that they would show their love with, ones upon whom they would show their affections. And that's what David's saying here in this psalm. David, who many nights would lie on the grass and stare at the stars, which were so far above him, more in number than he could ever conceive of. This one who had killed a bear and a lion by the strength provided to him, and a giant, the one who ruled over his people Israel and saw the promises of God's covenant faithfulness fulfilled. David knew that this powerful God loved his people. And this is the most amazing thing about God. We look at the created order. We see our galaxy. We see the billions of galaxies beyond it. And we can't even wrap our brains around that. It's, it's, it's hard to fathom. We're in awe of the fact that the moon is set at just the right distance from this planet and controls our tides just perfectly. We're in awe of the fact that gravity is at such a level that we can live here we're in awe of the fact that oxygen is produced by trees. That's amazing. The multivarious animals and plants that we see around us speak to the creative order and power of God. That's awe-inspiring. But the most glorious thing that God has ever done is made image bearers upon whom he set his affections. It doesn't make sense. But to give you a bit of an analogy, perhaps to help you at least, when you look at the world around you, it's easy to be in awe of riches. It's easy to be in awe of power. You've watched enough movies, you've read enough books to see the subjects of a king come into his royal court and bow and not have the authority to look him in the eye until he speaks to them. And, and then when they leave his chamber, they have to back up, bowing the whole way. We're impressed by that kind of power. But David, who would become a great king, is saying that the king of all, 
the one who made all things by the breath of his mouth, that he is one who can be approached with love because he loves his people. We need not cower in front of him in abject fear. We can trust him because he has shown great and enduring grace to his people. God is glorious in all of his power, but God is most glorious because he has shown his love and affections for his people. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In Matthew chapter 6, we won't take time to turn here, you can jot this down, but this is the section where Jesus tells his people that they can trust God, the one who clothes the flowers of the field in splendor, the one who feeds the birds. And if God clothes the flowers of the field in splendor and feeds the birds, they can trust him, that is, his people can, because they are of much more value than any flower or any bird. In Acts chapter 17, you can turn here with me. Paul picks up on some of these grand thoughts, that there is one who made all things, and even more than that, who sustains all things. Paul finds himself in Athens, speaking to the smartest people of the day, people who worshipped all kinds of gods and just to hedge their bets had an altar to the unknown God. And Paul picks up on this in verse 22. He says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He says in verse 23 that he saw their altar to the unknown God. And Paul says, that's who I speak of. The God, verse 24, who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In verse 28, he quotes one of their poets, and he says, In him we live and move and have our being. In verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul uses God's creative power and his creative love to point these people who don't know Christ at all to the one true God who made all things and sustains all things by his gracious love. So David's point in Psalm 8 is that we are to praise the majestic God who made all things. And most importantly, we are to trust Him because He made us and He set His affections upon us. But He has done more than that. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Hebrews 2. This one who decided to make all things knew full well that those whom he made, those whom he gave reason, 
those whom he gave emotions and the capacity to seek fulfillment, he knew that they would fall away. And so he decided, the Trinity decided, that they would set their affections upon some of the rebels. And Hebrews chapter 2 demonstrates to us by taking up the words of Psalm 8 that Jesus is the final fulfillment of all of God's promises. Look in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by him all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Verse 12, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given. Verse 17, Therefore he had to make me like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation, to bear the wrath for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The writer of Hebrews takes up Psalm 8 and relates it to Jesus. Those upon whom God set his favor would not worship him perfectly. That's you, and that's me. We turned from God. Adam and Eve, who had perfect fellowship with God, perfect happiness, perfect satisfaction, had never known a moment of sadness or loneliness or doubt or lack. They turned their back on the Creator. And ever since, humanity has been scrambling to try to find significance and meaning and hope. But it is to no avail because we cannot do it on our own. And the Scriptures make it very clear that we run away from the very one who can satisfy us. So what did God the Trinity do? God the Trinity decided that that would not be the end of the story. God the Trinity set his affections upon you, brother and sister, before creation ever came into place. So that when it did, and when it unraveled, there was a remedy. And Jesus is the remedy. He became one of us. He took on flesh. He who made all things became one of us. And in doing so, he kept all the laws we could not keep. He took the wrath 
that we deserved. And therefore, Jesus is the most beautiful and perfect expression of God's love for those whom he has created. David had an inkling of this. He who would be the great, great, great grandfather of Jesus. David who was in all of all that he saw, but most importantly was in all that God would love him at all. David's all, A-W-E, found its greatest fulfillment in the coming of his later son who would rescue lost humanity and bring them back to the Creator. How does David end? He ends the psalm in verse 9 by saying, Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Our covenant Lord is worthy of our praise. Why? Because he has set his favor and his affections upon his people. This psalm orients us. Our happiness, our significance will never be found in possessions. It will never be found in position. It will never be found ultimately in relationships. Our significance, our meaning is only and always to be oriented in the one true God who made all things and has set his affections upon his people, proven most clearly in the sacrifice of his son Jesus, in whom he is making a new humanity. We are not who we will be one day, but by God's grace, we are not who we were, and he is making you, brother, and you, sister, into a new creature, one who can be an all of the one true God and one who can trust him for his great grace. I call you today to be oriented around the one who deserves all of your praise because you can delight in him as a son and a daughter upon whom his affections and his favor are constantly set. How do we respond to this? Two things among many. First, we must be purposeful about regular exposure to God's Word. And I say that purposefully. I state it that way on purpose. In all of your opportunities, be exposed to God's Word. This is just one of them this morning. I encourage you, be involved in your small groups. There, there is nothing better than... than orienting yourself around truth with your brothers and sisters. We'll talk more about that in a moment. This means you've got to be in it on your own as well. We talked about this last week in Psalm 1 as we introduced our summer series. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sits in the seat of the scorners, but his or her delight is in the law of the Lord And on his law, he meditates or she meditates day and night. And what is the outcome for such a person who is regularly exposed to God's word? They will be like trees planted by streams of water that bring forth fruit in their season. This life is long. The sojourn is difficult. The path is arduous and often the bends we cannot see around. 
where we can trust that as we are oriented around what is true, despite what our eyes see, despite what our ears perceive, the Word of God tells us what is true, and the Word of God is for the people of God. And I call you to this exercise, to this discipline, not out of some sort of legalistic craving, but because I want you to have joy in God's Word. Through regular exposure will help you in ways that nothing else can. Secondly and lastly for today, we collectively must fight our tendency to find significance and joy in lesser things. Prayer and community are indispensable. Let me say that again. We must fight our tendency to find significance and joy in lesser things Prayer and community are indispensable. In your quiet moments, when you're super sad, where do you turn to get yourself happy again? When you are scared to death of your environment, where do you go to remove the anxiety? That says a lot about what you treasure. It says a ton about what you worship. But we, beloved, must be careful to fight our tendencies to find significance and joy in lesser things. Your significance is not in what you know. Your significance is not in what you have. Your significance is not in who you are connected to. Your significance is that you have been oriented in the one who came to rescue you for the glory of God and for your eternal joy. I guess what I'm saying to you in this final point of application is to be a good idol detective. Sometimes you can see your own nose, but sometimes you can't. And that's why you need people around you, thus the second portion of this point of application. You've got to pray this out, talking back and forth to God, but you need people around you to help you as well. Inviting people into your story, and they inviting you into theirs, that you might pursue joy together. As scary as that may seem, it's the most rational thing that you can do. At the end of the day, you know what a church is if you really want to boil it down. Church ultimately is not a club. It's ultimately not a place with a collection of activities. A church ultimately is a band of people Pursuing the, go- the joy, let me start over because I just botched that, and you know how much I hate that. <clears throat> a church ultimately is a band of people pursuing the glory of God through each other's mutual joy. You know what I do as a pastor? You, you know what my primary objective is? Is that you will find your joy, your deepest joy in God. You know what your responsibility as a brother and sister toward one another is? It's to help the one sitting next to you, to help the one that you struggle with relationally, to find their deepest joy in God. That's what a church is. A church is a band of people pointing one another to the source of joy, struggling together through sin and sorrow over the years to convince each other that joy alone is to be found in God. And we help each other along the way. That's what we're here for. 
It's hard. We do it imperfectly, but that's why we exist. So I call you to be a good idol detective for yourself and for others. And at the end of the day, Jesus is the only one who makes this possible. Because if it wasn't for the grace of Jesus, the prospect of such an endeavor would be frightening. But because my significance is not in my righteousness, I can help you and you can help me. So brothers and sisters, be oriented around what is true. There is one God who is majestic in all of the earth. And the most glorious thing that he has ever done, the way in which his glory is most on display, is that he has set his affections on his image bearers, most particularly those whom he has chosen in Christ, those who know Jesus and trust him. And therefore, because of this, we say, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray.